well, welcome uh, to our panel discussion. Uh, thankful to, to have these men here as uh, our featured speakers for this conference. Uh, you, you already know uh, Rick Carey and uh, Dave Doran. Um, want to just briefly introduce a couple of our, our featured workshop speakers who are joining us here in the panel discussion. Reagan Rose is the founder of Redeeming Productivity Ministry. Uh, it's a ministry really focused on helping Christians uh, to make sure that they are using their time well for the Lord, and especially a burden to help uh, pastors in, in this. And so thankful to have him here and the, the workshops that he's done. And then uh, Mark Ward is the senior digital editor for... Uh, the blog for Lagos, I can't remember the name now, um, but has worked with, with Lagos and really has a real burden to help uh, believers and pastors be able to better understand and study God's word. And so he did our pre-conference on, on Lagos and as well, I think it's a workshop after this. And so thankful for him and his willingness to be here to serve us for this conference. This panel discussion is going to be uh, thinking a little bit about our, our conference theme, focused and faithful. And I want to begin by kind of the beginning stages of ministry. If someone is not yet in pastoral ministry, but maybe is thinking they, they would like to pursue that, how do they know when they're ready? How, how do they know when it's, it's time for them to, to start pursuing or to step into uh, pastoral ministry? Rick? <laughs> Dave? <laughs> I don't think I'm ready yet. I mean, I'm, I, uh, and I, I'm not, that's not false humility. You're never ready. You, you get as equipped as you can with your academia, with your Greek, your Hebrew, your, your um, exegetical, hermeneutical skills. Um, but uh, you, th there, there's a sense in which you're as ready as you can be and equipped, but you, um, you're never beyond dependence on the Lord. So... Um, Having a good team around you is important, but uh, that's where a group of elders, a group of leaders in a church can help establish whether a man's character is where it needs to be, his, his uh, training is where it needs to be. Um, and you get as equipped and as ready as you can be, but uh, there, there's a, there's a, the learning curve is pretty steep when, when, you, when you get into ministry. So it's a good question, but the ultimate answer is you're as ready as you're affirmed to be, um, but... You know, you don't know. I remember when I went to Commission Road, and I was you know, 48 at the time, thinking, ah, these, the first six months, these people don't know what they don't know. And then you wake up one morning and realize, I don't know what I don't know either. And so it's a, it's a pretty good shock to the system. So that was a good non-answer. Is, is that fair? No, that, thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think ideally you want to be, uh, arrive at that sense within the context of community, within the context of the local church. Um, when I was coming through, there was a sense in which you sort of arrived at your call independently, and maybe that's a you know, controversial topic, but I remember a guy confronted me, an older man confronted me in the bookstore at Bob Jones University and said, you know, Gary, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know, sir. And he said, you need to determine your calling. And so I went home, that was at the end of the semester, I went home that summer and I was in my bedroom and I was reading through 2 Timothy. I got to 2 Timothy 4.2. It said, preach the word. I was like, that's it. You know, God has called me to, to preach. Maybe that was the case, but that was totally independent of any church context or affirmation or uh, elder pastoral oversight. So I think ideally you want to try to arrive at that sense, equipment, affirmation within the context of your uh, church body. So if someone maybe doesn't feel they're ready yet or don't have others telling them yet that they're ready, what do they do now? What can they do to prepare for a focused and faithful ministry? Is the right answer go to Detroit Seminary? Is that, is that, yeah. the, is, is, is that what I'm supposed to say here? Work is, works for me. <laughs> Worked for me, too. For you, yeah. yeah. So. I mean, I... I I think the bridge on those two is um, I think we're a person's better uh, served by actually focusing on them being uh, faithful, right? Because the ministry is to be entrusted to faithful men, um, qualified, right? The scriptures talk about what those qualifications are. So 
aspire to the character qualities that are there. Um, if they believe they've got gifts that could be used, begin to use those gifts and not, be, not, not worry about the position. And I'm, I don't think I'm a pietist, right? But I, I think that if you actually focus on the thing you're supposed to focus on, that God will open up the thing he wants you to do, right? It's, I think when we, when we actually um, are, are angling for the position that we end up having a problem on the preparation side. <laughs> now, I think, I think you can aspire to it. I'm not saying, you know, forget about it. I'm just saying, well, if you aspire to it, here's the qualifications, right? So, so focus your life on, on cultivating godly character, on being a faithful person in the tasks you're given right now, in seeking to use the gifts God's given to you with diligence and to stir them up, and, and then, then there will be affirmation of it. Doors will open. Uh, the doors that God wants open will open. So maybe someone's now in ministry, but they're a youth pastor, they're an assistant pastor, and, and they believe maybe the Lord would be directing them <clears throat> to serve as a senior pastor, as a primary teaching pastor. How do you know when that time has come? I got tired of listening to my pastor. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> is he here? Where's Harding? Is he here? That's what I was going to say. No. Yeah, my associate staff is here, so I get, they got to be careful when they yeah, hear things, things like that. <laughs> yeah, I was taking a shot at my former pastor, but so, not here. Now I can really take a shot at him. I think, I think that's something that comes, um, I mean, it, part, it partly comes down to what is the burden in your heart. I mean, I, I know that's fuzzy, but, you know, at least for me, um, I, I had a burden to teach and preach more. And, and so it was, you know, pursue, pursue that opportunity and to be, um, you know, in that, that role. Now, I don't think it, I don't, I don't think that has to be just a senior pastorate kind of role, but so... I, I, uh, I am a little bit on the, um, you know, you have your eyes open for what it needs to be done for the Lord, and and then um, He places a ministry burden in your heart to pursue it. I wouldn't pursue it if I had no burden for it. <laughs> you can call it a call or whatever, but I mean. I think I think there needs to be some level of oughtness that's short of your sinning. Yeah, I would say related to that, but like personally, observationally, I there's a restlessness that um, you're sort of working through, and you you feel that restlessness uh, continuing and escalating to the point where it's like I I you know something something needs to happen here. And maybe that's a conversation with the pastors or, you know, exploration of other opportunities. But that, that burden, that restlessness just sort of continues and elevates. Kind of a 10-second rant for a second. I think probably the thing most broken in contemporary evangelicalism, at least in America, is, the, is candidating search committees finding a place, knowing when you're going to leave a place. And, and you know, I've had... I've had people say, well, when you want to go somewhere, if you're an associate pastor, you want to go. Don't tell anybody, and you, you do this covertly. And, and then other people say, no, you tell everybody, and then you're kind of a lame duck. And there's, there's, there has to be a way to thread that needle where the leadership cares enough about the body and cares enough about the, the man who wants to go that that's celebrated and excited. I mean, a call to ministry is not real hard to figure out biblically. It's four things, aspiration, um, character, giftedness and affirmation, which affirms all that by the leadership. And that ought to be something that's, that's encouraged and celebrated and enjoyed with, within the church and the leadership um, without making it so corporate that um, um, it's a threat to think about leaving and it's a threat to think about staying. Um, I, I don't know any two churches who ever find a pastor the same way or any 
two men that ever find a church the same way. It is an, an almost an irreparably broken system. But I think we can help remedy that by just being honest and open and caring for our men and the, the churches and, and trying to wed those two in a way that, um, that, that gets beyond the corporate competition model that has been forced upon um, how people find a church now. So, Reagan, I'm going to start with you on this one, but <clears throat> welcome everyone else as well. You just wrote this book, Well Done, and, and thinking through what, what does faithfulness look like for me? How, how do I figure that out? How, how do I gauge what faithfulness looks like for me in my life? Yeah, I think the, the big thing is to think about it holistically. I think especially in ministry context, there can be the temptation to restrict your view of faithfulness to the, the ministry, and that's important. We've been focusing on that this week. But one of the, the problems and what can lead to even becoming out of balance in life is that you don't consider that you holistically need to be a faithful steward of every area of your life. You're called to steward all of that. It's a life stewardship. And th- that really looks like fulfilling what God has called you to do in your ministry, in the church, in, but with your family, with your health, it's, it's a complete picture because um, you don't want to be faithful in just one area and neglect the other things the Lord's called you to. I think one of the challenges sometimes is, is evaluating, am I being faithful? How do I measure this? Are, 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 there, are there ways to, to be able to, to evaluate and measure how I'm being faithful that, that you've maybe utilized in your life and ministry? I'll just share one thing that I've found helpful. I've talked about this in some of my workshops, um, but I follow a concept called domains of stewardship where you just, you literally define what are the six or so main areas that I'm been called to be faithful in and responsible for. And I do this once a quarter. I, you could do this in the context of other people with your spouse be helpful, but I literally grade myself and I know I'm just making this up and it's, it's my own self-evaluation, but I, I find that a very helpful exercise in reflecting. I grade myself one out of five. How am I doing in, in spiritual things? How's my walk with the Lord? One out of five. How's my relationships? How are my, um, how am I doing my vocation? How am I doing with my physical health? How am I doing with, with rest and recreation? And so I, I just across the board and then I look at that and once a quarter I say, okay, I'm falling short in these things. I'm doing okay in these. The ones where I'm falling short, let's set some goals and let's make, make a plan for bringing those back up. And again, it's, it's all, you're sort of making it up. It's a self-evaluation thing, but I found that very helpful to force myself to reflect, to evaluate how I'm doing and, and try to, to bring the bar up on faithfulness in areas where I do know I'm falling short. I can mention something. My church has a program for training leaders The pastor came in, my pastor, about seven years ago, and he said that he was the youngest elder on the board by like 25 years. And he asks the existing elders, what, you know, plans do we have in place for forming up new elders? And they just shrugged their shoulders and had no idea. So he wrote a curriculum, and I think we're going through it the third time. I helped, or maybe fourth, I helped teach the last year, and now I'm doing parts of it on my own. And a huge portion of this training program, and it's actually for men and women, because there are plenty of you know leadership opportunities for women, even in any complementarian church. Um, we've gone through the qualifications, uh, character qualifications in the pastoral epistles. And actually, I ended up in God's providence going to India with my pastor, and we went through those same qualifications. And hearing that multiple times, teaching through it multiple times, that was a really helpful exercise for me, just to remind myself, okay, what are the marks that God has set for me? And I think it's really been heartwarming for me to watch as a number of younger elders have come on to the elder board who were the regular layman in the church and went through that leadership course and now are serving very well. My little homiletical way of doing it is... um what roles do I have? What responsibilities? What resources? Right, because stewardship is going to be, I, I have certain God-given roles, and, and so I need to fulfill those, all of them. And what are the responsibilities tied to those? And what resources I've been entrusted with to use in that? 
so so that I'm trying to look at what I actually am accountable for and am I being faithful in that? Yeah, for me, I have to ask somebody out, outside of myself. I think the self-evaluation is good, um, but I, I probably <coughs> would, would not be able to see certain things in my own life that others could see. So I would just ask, you know, before our church transitioned into a plurality of pastors, I would ask the deacons and just say, hey, how am I doing? You know, just get their assessment of ministry faithfulness and, you know, family balance and these kinds of things. And then once we transition to a multiplicity of pastors, just asking them straight up, you know, what's your perspective? How am I doing? It would have been nice to have like a, maybe some kind of form or some kind of like official um, way of evaluating. But I found that outside input really, really helpful. Recognizing there is no normal week. You have maybe thoughts, plans of what you want to do, but something always comes up. Could you give us a little bit of a sense of of maybe how you found a good schedule or rhythm to accomplish certain things? Like this is is when I find it's good for me to deal with emails and communications. This is when it's good for me to, to do admin work. This is when it's good for me to do sermon prep. This is when it's good for me to get on the app formerly known as Twitter. Uh, how, how do you manage different things that, that you do throughout the week? I'm, look, I'm looking at you, Reagan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I did a workshop on this. If you guys want to listen to it on uh, creating a, a schedule. I, well, and I, I am not in full-time vocational pastoral ministry, so I'm not the right person to give exact answers of how, how to do it. But I've studied a lot of pastor schedules. This was something I've done as part of my research into this. And one of the things that just give us just sort of a high level thing is have a schedule um, that it, it, you'd be surprised, or maybe you're not if you don't have a schedule, but creating <laughs> a ideal schedule for your week, sort of this is how the week will go. This is the day I'm going to have a day off. This is the day I'll do sermon prep. This is the day I'll take meetings and try to hold to that. You're going to deviate because stuff comes up, but having a normal to get back to there's a lot of wisdom in that, a lot of wisdom in that, because uh, otherwise you're always under the tyranny of the urgent. You're constantly putting out fires and the important stuff isn't getting done. And, and most tragically is if you don't guard that time that you should be in the word studying it and preparing your message, that's just, it, you're, you're giving up really the, the most important part of your ministry to these other things. So you got to create a schedule and you got to guard it. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, maybe Reagan talked about this, but you can create like a separate calendar in Google Calendar as your ideal week and then just kind of overlay that on top of your uh, other calendars and just kind of see like what you would aspire to do at, on, in these blocks of time. And, uh, and then that helps you sort of navigate, you know, when you're going to meet with certain people or when you're going to do this or that or the other. So if, if you, uh, I'm going to start with you, Mark, on this one. Um, as you've been in the word, you've been studying the word, if there is one practice that you would encourage these men to, to begin to adopt the Bible study beyond by Lagos, but uh, one, one particular <laughs> practice, you say, this has been really helpful for me in just making sure that I'm, I'm in the word and studying it well. Is, is there something you would encourage these men to adopt? You're, you're kind of like my kids when they say, dad, who's your favorite person? And don't say mom. You know, you're saying, I can't say Lagos. All right, what do I say? You know, actually, I do know what to say. Um, I have a little catchphrase, if you could call it that, but men of the word must be people of words. You have to understand words. I'm going to talk about good thinking and writing in my workshop session. And it is a continual burden of mine um, as someone who sort of trains pastors in a weird way. I write for pastors and other Bible nerds at Lagos, I've written hundreds of articles, and even just recently I realized, wow, a major burden of a ton of these is don't misuse the original languages. And I do think um, if I get my little chance to say what pastors should do, and I say this humbly because I've been an assistant, I've been an outreach pastor, I've not been a senior pastor, I have never had to preach every single week, though I, I teach in Sunday school pretty much every week. I would say that 
Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson and Biblical Words and Their Meaning by Moises Silva ought to be read certainly by everyone who's had any Greek and Hebrew. And at least Exegetical Fallacies by Carson is something that every pastor should probably check up with, you know, every couple of years. Um, because I feel like otherwise excellent sermons are often marred by little distracting misuses of the Hebrew and Greek. And um, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Protestant. I truly believe in lay Bible reading. And I learned how to read my Bible as a graphic design major, utterly thrilled to hear expository sermons from Mark Minnick. Um, and that was my call into ministry. I learned how to read my Bible by listening to the way he did it. And if he had been misusing Greek and Hebrew, that would have thrown me off the path that would have subverted his own Bible teaching and his own modeling of how to read the Bible. That, if, if that's the question I get, that's my main answer. Um, and there are a lot of tools uh, beyond that. I can absolutely load you up with books and articles to read. And I have some articles that I could send your way that I wrote as well. But that would be my answer to that question. Anyone else, something you would say, this has been really important for me. And, and I, I think it's really crucial as I'm studying the word. I would, I would say before you get to tools, um, immerse yourself in the text. Mm -hmm. right? that I think we don't want, we want, we have to be firsthand familiar with what it says because our only, uh, our only protection against wrong ideas in commentaries is our knowledge of what the text says. So, so we need to be immersed in it. So I think you should, uh, the first task is always reading the text so thoroughly and repeatedly that you can, you have captured what its main point is and you can substantiate that from the very words of the text. And, and so your driven by the central idea of that passage, and then you're going out for help for things that are difficult to understand, uh, for things that you may have missed because someone has spent their whole life writing this commentary or whatever, you know. So, so now you're supplementing your research because I think there's a difference in a sermon between someone who is refrying everybody else's comments and someone who has had firsthand discovery with this truth in the text. And so I, I think, um, I think we really need to start with the text and work our way out. When I first started uh, preaching, I was doing Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I just felt this pressure, you know, you feel like a content generator, you know, like a sermon uh, manufacturing machine. And so I, I kind of fell into that habit of just kind of going to the resources because I needed content. I needed it quickly. And it was like a light bulb liberating moment for me when I realized, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to open up the text and I'm just going to see what I see for myself. And I would do a whiteboard and I was, I was just shocked that um, I could go through this process almost all the way from text to sermon before I ever pulled a commentary or anything off the shelf. And now I would do that, but much later in the process. And that was such a liberating thing for me. And it, I think it, it helped me pastor people much better than just, you know, kind of coming up with an eclectic, you know, combination of secondary sources for them to sort of hear how I had processed those. Right. Uh, so what I'd say is, and I guess I put the framework on it. I mean, actually, way, way back. Um, so, so if you think this way, synthesis, analysis, synthesis, right? So we need to understand the whole and then understand the parts and then make sure we put it back together. Right? So if, you know, if, and I, I probably shouldn't use this because I'm not very mechanically inclined, but if we had an engine on the table there, the first thing would be to understand how that whole thing works together. Then pull it apart and understand what each part is doing, but then I've got to put it back together. And I think sometimes because we jump into the analytical tools first, 
we actually haven't understood how it all works and we end up not putting it all back together. So sometimes our sermons can just seem like a, a walk through a museum display of the passage and we're just pointing out parts and this, you know, this word and this thing and that, and we never actually help them see what the real purpose and function of it was. Because the people who are receiving, let's say New Testament letter, the people at Colossae who are receiving this letter were supposed to be able to understand it by hearing it read to them. They weren't going to go, okay, so now let's go, you know, let's go, we got to pull out all this stuff. <coughs> and, and so obviously we're in a different ballgame because we're not native <coughs> Greek readers, and we're not in that culture and all that, but I still think we have to start with the whole parts and then back to the whole and and uh, let that, therefore, dictate our methods. Right. Another analogy, I mean, what Dr. Dorn is describing is the hermeneutical spiral. You're going from the general to the particular and back, and actually, you never stop. You will always have some idea of the general. And it's a good uh, warning there. Don't get so caught up in the particulars that are so exciting when you get into the exegetical process that you forget to communicate the general to your people. Another um, illustration I've used is the forest and the trees or like a microscope uh, looking at a twig versus going up in a hot air balloon and looking at uh, an entire forest. I have found that to be helpful over and over again as well. So outside of... <clears throat> Bible study, if there was one practice that you found that's been very helpful for you to be able to, to remain focused, to remain faithful in what God has called you to do, uh, what, what practice would that be that maybe you would encourage others to consider adopting? I would just say for me that the biggest point of leverage in my own sort of journey from being sort of a, a, a young man who was wasting his life in, in video games and just doing nothing to becoming more focused on, okay, how do I bring all of my life into alignment to glorify God as best I can? The, the, the big change for me was when I started getting serious about what I did first thing in the morning. And so, and, and that continues to be, if I'm consistent with having a good routine in the morning, the rest of the day goes better. The week goes better. Things get done. I found that to be just, often people ask me, so like, I want to get more productive. I want to get my life more in order, which I start with. That's what I always say. You get, get your devotions in order, get your time with the Lord, um, make a plan for the day. Just have a few things you do every single morning. First thing you do when you wake up, the day always goes better. Related to that, um, I found it really helpful just before I go to bed just to determine what those some of those key things are going to be for the next day because, I don't know, there's something about waking up and just sort of <laughs> entering into the fray and you just kind of get sucked into this uh, black hole. And if I didn't take, you know, five, ten minutes to just identify, you know, one, two, three, here are some of the top things I want to try to do tomorrow, then I just sort of lose uh, focus and, and uh, kind of get sucked into whatever. So one, one topic that I think increasingly we're, we're going to have to, to think about as we're thinking about being faithful in ministry is, is the use of AI. You can, you can now ask someone, give me a sermon. No, not someone, something. <laughs> give me a sermon. It might be someone yeah, now. Yeah. We don't know yet. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and, and you get the sermon back, right? Give me, or give me a title or give me the outline. So is AI something we should just say, let's not use it for ministry? Are there ways we can utilize it in ministry, and, and, and then maybe things we want to avoid? Logos, you know, we're tackling this question, and I've not been deeply involved in those discussions. I'm basically in a different department, but I've been keeping my ear to them. And I can't say all the stuff that we're working on. Um, we're taking it seriously. I mean, what has Logos been for all these years except a means of taking technological tools and putting them in the hands 
of Bible students and especially of Bible teachers. Um, I think my initial reaction was a little more negative than our company's reaction has ended up being, but I can't see a world still in which we are encouraging pastors to let AI write their sermons. There would be no need for Logos in that case, for one thing. But I think for me, um, my mentor uh, said, would always quote Phillips Brooks, preaching is truth through personality. I was sharing this with Reagan and Carrie last night at dinner. And I always took that to mean something like, my personality should color the way that the truth comes out. Uh, in part to demonstrate to people, you know, those qualifications of character for ministry. And I think that's true. I think there's an element of preaching that in which you ought to have a voice. Um, as a writer, that's very important to me. It, um, it, it, it's, it's a model for me was set by when someone said to me, when I read even the first paragraph of an article that you wrote and I, and I didn't even check to see who wrote it, I, I know it's you. I think that's a good thing. And that's part of truth through personality. The other thing, though, that I think AI has brought up to me is another aspect of that word through. That is, as the truth goes through my personality, it ought to have some effect on me. And I am wary of allowing tech tools to subvert and sort of do a and run around that process. I need to marinate in the text the way Dr. Doran was describing. And it's, it's immaterial. It's, um, what's the word I want to say? Um, it is a little bit mystical. What, what is the effect that I have that the uh, marinating, marinating in the text has on me? I, I want to make sure that keeps happening though. I believe in it. So truth, I want the truth to go through my personality and then shape that personality as it goes through. I have a little bit of a selfish response. I know there's the, what Dr. Dorman was talking about today with God will approve us based on our study, but I, the process of study and discovery is so valuable for my own soul, for my own enjoyment, for, uh, if you said your sermon is prepared for you Thursday afternoon by doing a, a few clicks, I, you lose the whole joy of, and, and it changes you. That, that whole study process is, is chipping away at your sanctification at every word study, at every contextual study, at every commentary read, at every English re- Bible reading. And I, so I think selfishly, I would never want to turn sermon prep over to an intern, an assistant, or AI. I, I think it robs the preacher of the greatest value of sermon prep, which is no one interacts with that text all week like you do. And I just wouldn't want to lose that. So I'm, I'm pretty much a Luddite, so it's not really a good, you know, like a deal for me to do. I'd say at least we be should think the same things we would think about using any other resource, right? That you can't take credit for other people's work. Uh, I mean, I, you guys may not agree with me, but I mean, like sometimes when guys have, you know, if they've got an overwhelming production responsibility, I have said to them, you know, we, we've always had a category for using Sunday school curricula, right? So if you're having problem, problem doing Wednesday nights, you know, get a good study guide from someone or whatever, and, and then just tell everybody up front, this is what we're using. Right, you're you're telling them I'm following this study guide that was written by this person. Don't preach their stuff and act like it's yours. Right, that's dishonest. And I'd think the same thing at least would be true if anybody's doing any kind of chat thing. It, you can't be acting like it's yours, or else you have an integrity problem, and you're going to end up with a credibility problem. Right, so. So if they were going to use it, they'd have to use it properly. And and if that's going to become, I mean, if someone was going to say, well, I don't have time to preach any sermons, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, all of my messages are going to be somebody else's Bible studies or whatever. At some point you'd go, I don't think that's actually the ministry we're called to. Right? I think I think you're actually not you have eliminated what is the priority of your responsibility. And I think that there's, there's got to be something wrong with that, right? So on top of the things about, you know, the value that, um, 
I mean, honestly, you're going to ask you're going to ask 14 questions over the course of a quarter from people about what's in the scripture, and if you're never studying the scriptures, you can't do your you can't do the task anyway. I mean, the fact is, you're prepared to shepherd people by your immersion in God's word, so you can't hand that off either. And in light of Dr. Doran's message this morning, I mean, it, frankly, at this point, it's just not reliable. I mean, uh, I've, I've put in questions about The Hobbit, you know, just to see, and it, and it kicks out answers that just aren't true. And I'll correct it, and it'll say, oh, yes, that's, you know, thank you for pointing that out, you know, and, and it generates something additional that's false. So, I mean, it's like I would not trust something like that to generate, especially not a sermon, you know, sermon content uh, per se. Just two principles as I think about it. I'm all about saving time. I mean, I'm talking about productivity. That's like what I do all the time. But I, I think as you think about the AI thing, uh, when it comes to preaching and teaching, I echo, echo what these guys have said. I think we could assume that it may be possible in the future that the AI is so good that it can produce sermons that are technically better than what you can produce. And you could assume that maybe they, they get it sorted where it actually is citing its sources. If you get to that point, I think what, um, what Pastor Doran talked about is true. You, you basically have the same question of, well, why am I not just using someone else's sermon and just telling people and you know, being upfront about it but saying, I'm just preaching this other person's sermon? Or why don't I just play a video of, of John Piper or something on the screen, right? And then w- w- what I think you have to consider is God's design for the local church and the pastor in a local church nothing, you know, God, God's sovereign, nothing held him back from setting things up in such a way that we had video recordings of Paul and we just all were supposed to watch those. The pastor's role to represent the word of God, as he said, truth through personality, that's why you're there. God providentially puts you over that congregation with knowledge of their particular needs, their particular proclivities, their particular sins, their particular trials, and the way in which you prepare and give the message to them. That's why you're there. And so I think that's one thing because there even there may be gradations for how you can use it. Like I use Grammarly to like edit stuff afterwards. There's AI in there. But in terms of generating things, I think the same principles are at play. The other thing I would consider, I think this is more important, is the role of the Holy Spirit in the preparation of, of your message. The, the, the Spirit, uh, he, he illuminates the text for us for you to understand it. And I would just be very, very wary of anything that is going to mess with that because I don't know how that works exactly as I study the word and in, in trying to prepare a message for the people that God has given me. I don't think chat GPT has the Holy Spirit. I've tried to evangelize it and it just says, you know, ridiculous answers and keeps telling me it data, it's data cuts off in September of 2021. But I think that's an important thing is, is to remember that part of message prep is it's a spirit. You are, you, are, you are spiritually gifted to do this. The Holy Spirit is active in that. I don't want to mess with that equation. That's not the place to save time is what I would say. Find other places to save time. Find other places to be more efficient, but not there. I have been using AI for parenting my children and it's doing just as good a job as I used to do. So I do like it for that. No, actually, I did find one use for it. I feel like Google is kind of mainly a keyword search. And the additional value that chat GPT and other AI models have is that it does some level of synthesis. So here's a very narrow niche thing I needed to know. I happened to do a study on the word Calvary, which actually is just the Latin word for skull. And I found out that in old English, they used to call it headpan stow. His headpan was your skull and stow meant place. And I thought, I wonder what other places in the, in Britain, let's say, have the word stow in them. And I couldn't think of one. So I asked chat GPT. It came up immediately with Bristol. And I checked that out later because I wasn't sure it was just, you know, maybe making this up. And it was true. So they, it had chewed through some stuff that I think would have been difficult for me to find with a mere keyword search. That's the main use of chat GPT that I found so far. And why did you want to know this? (laughs) (laughs) He has a video on it. I watched it this morning. False yeah. friends, right? Uh, it is, I was asking the question, why don't modern Bible, there's an answer to this. I was asking the question, why don't modern Bible versions use the word Calvary okay. anymore? And it sent me down this rabbit hole and uh, I never have actually exited it. I'm still down there. Okay. 
Let us know when you Mark's come out. Mark's YouTube channel is amazing, by the way. He does this kind of thing, goes so in depth on it. It's it's. I was binging it last night and today after talking with him. So wasting. I mean, using. Yes, your time. yes, investing my time. <laughs> you know, since I'm in academia, I've had to do quite a bit with ChatGPT because of student use of AI and trying to think through this. And we're kind of on the front end of this, so we're kind of working through this together. So I've experimented with this in reference to sermon preparation and planning just so I could talk to my students about it. Um, and I think there are probably some uses when it comes to synthesis. Like, I, th- I think it can be helpful when you're putting in the stuff that you've already created. Like, it's your work. You could take a transcript of your sermon, put it into ChatGPT, and have it summarize it in, you know, a paragraph. Now, obviously, you're going to have to go back through that and look to see if it's, you know, but, but in many cases, it does a pretty good job. Or you could say, you know, extract the, the three top ideas from this, you know, chunk of text, and it, and it will do that pretty quickly. Um, I could see possible uses, you know, if you do the small group thing where you take a Sunday sermon and you discuss it in small groups, you know, maybe taking the sermon transcript and then saying, hey, ChatGPT, based on Bloom's taxonomy, you know, come up with six questions that are higher order uh, thinking questions based on the sermon, and it'll generate six questions. And you, at least it gives you some ideas. Maybe you wouldn't have thought to ask that question. You're thinking, you know, that's a really good question, or that's a terrible question, or here's this idea made me think of this idea. And so I think it can be a good, you know, idea generator and a conversation partner. You know, recently I preached a sermon where I was uh, talking about B.B. Warfield's family life and the relationship that he had with his wife, and there was some disagreement about a story about her sort of, you know, experiencing a lightning storm, and a, she kind of got, you know, um, she, she was basically an invalid, but there was some question about the details of that, so I used Bing uh, chat, and the nice thing about Bing Chat is that it includes the links from where you know it gets the the material, and then I just followed all those links to the sources, and then I was able to sort of sort through uh, some of the discrepancies that way. So I, you know, I th- I think that there are some use cases. It just we're kind of on the front end of this, so we're sort of a little nervous about uh, where this is all going to go uh, eventually. So, so one of the important things as a pastor is talk about you're, you're, you're communicating God's word through your personality. And so how do you better communicate God's word? Is there something as you've had experience in preaching, in teaching that, that you said, when I started doing this, I think it helped me to be more clear. I think it helped me to connect better with the congregation. I think they were able to hear what I was saying better. Anything that, that you would say in, in your own ministry, you found that maybe someone else could benefit from. I need to be clear in the question. <laughs> I mean, it seems a, a little obvious, but when I'm preparing, I, I try hard to think about different people and different groups in my in my study. I want to think about businessmen and the stay-at-home moms and um, the collegians and the high schoolers. Uh, and People have often said you have to exegete your audience as you're exegeting the text. I think there's some truth to that because I would preach a certain passage different at our youth camp than I would on a Sunday morning because the audience is different, the illustrations may be different, the applications may be different. So thinking about the, 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 and I'm going to get into this a little bit this afternoon on shepherding the flock of God among you. I'm preaching to people. It's always funny when people say, I felt like you were preaching just that right at me. And you want to say, well, I was. I mean, I, did you think it was somebody in the other room? Uh, I mean, th- yeah, of course I was. Um, now, you don't want to say, yeah, just like that that guy, oh, let's just say his name was Mark, and he, and, yeah, you, you don't do that. But thinking of the, of the people that God has called to be under the shepherding crook of my sermon on Sunday morning helps so much to pull, I think, the, the application, the truth through personality to the personalities of the people, and, and there's a, a wedding of truth. We were talking about this in the preaching seminar yesterday. Every week as we study, man, you know this, you're, 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 you have a five-passenger car, and you're going to Disneyland, 
And by the time you get to Saturday, you've got 13 kids. Somebody's not going. And so deciding the synthesis part of that sermon, what do I say? You can't say everything, but you have to say something. Well, so what is the something? And I think understanding the shepherding nuance of the flock of God that God has given you shapes that. Um, so uh, thinking about the people that we care for and that we shepherd, um, faces, names. Uh, now, I'm not saying, you know, you're talking about, um, uh, First Thessalonians and uh, sexual purity and you, you, you think of the guy who's been confessing things to you for, for six months and you're going to use that. That's not what I mean. But thinking about parts of the body and the congregation really helps me to focus the sermon on the people who will hear it and who will need that amazing truth that God has given us by his providence that Sunday for that group of people. A, pra a practical thing, I think, for me was starting to delay the sermon outline in the process versus starting right away thinking sermon outline, but actually being willing to live with the tension of getting to that outline last because I wanted to get the text and be clear and then use the sermon outline as the strategy to communicate versus uh, the structure of my exegesis. Right, the sermon is actually how I'm going to help them understand, embrace, and apply the text. So working uh, through that with all the normal process and being learning for me, because I tend to be a little bit more the, I mean, I go back some to my early sermons were like, you know, Roman number one, A, B, one, A, you know, I mean, it was like a skeletal system, and that was basically the sermon. So I was probably extreme on that end, and then delaying it so that I could really have a better idea of how I need to communicate this to the audience. So living with the tension, uh, because, you know, you're working through the text and you know Sunday's coming, we can start to go, I, I mean, I gotta, I gotta get my outline done. I gotta get my outline done. And this is not, I hadn't intended this, but when we set up audiovisual systems that are saying, hey, we need to have your outline for the PowerPoint by such and such a date, you're starting to be focused on your outline rather than actually the content and then the strategy to communicate it. And I think, I think that isn't the most helpful way to approach it if we're talking about how do we really communicate the truth of this text in a, uh, in a, a clear and persuasive, fruitful way. Transitioning a little bit uh, to another aspect of, of, of ministry and, and life, we, we mentioned it's not just your, your vocation or your church ministry. Uh, you also have to be faithful within your family. And so perhaps something that, that you found that was very helpful for you in strengthening your marriage or strengthening your family uh, that you would encourage others to adopt. I'm going to still against thunder, but I, uh, the, the greatest thing that God gave Kim and me, it was early in our marriage when people, when someone said, actually it was Stuart Scott, who's Bob Jones now, and he did our premarital and helped us in our, the first few years of our marriage and just said, um, you have to plan your marriage. So we, even to this day, every Sunday afternoon, we look at our week and our month. And then a few times a year, we'll look at our week and our month and our quarter. Um, and then even next summer and vacation. But if one of the best ways I've found I can love my wife is giving her predictability in our marriage. And that comes with um, scheduling with family. I mean, it's as simple as for the next, you know, we'll plan our family nights and someone says, hey, can we do something on Thursday night? I'm sorry, we have a commitment. You know what our commitment is? Is to be home and do nothing except be with our family. That's a commitment that we've we've already made it. It's it's hard and stone on the calendar. So um, I, I know this is your wheelhouse, but I think 
having a plan, and this is the same for my kids. Uh, from, I have three sons, adult sons, uh, and they were younger. The predictability of planning our life as much as you can. There, are, life throws you curveballs every day, and a plan is not a contract. It's a, it's like a budget. But um, the the more strategic we could be about redeeming those time blocks and those time periods and those scheduling um, commitments that we would have for each other um, was 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 really helpful for our marriage then, and honestly, it is still now. Um, now I have a strange and a unique blessing in that my 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 wife is also the church secretary so she actually plans my life too um uh just about every day and we coordinate that so uh i don't want to be too mundane uh, ben but it, honestly planning our lives as much as we can has been the most influential thing if i can say in in our marriage in the health of our marriage and i have a wonderful marriage that i'm enjoying every day of god's gift I concur. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing we, we got from marriage counseling that we've done since we first got married is uh, our, our pastor said, you know, consider going to bed at the same time every night. And we've done that nearly every night of our marriage. Some nights, you know, there are things I have to stay up late or I'm out of town or something like that. That's just been a really simple thing that has been a great way to guarantee time together in the evening. Um, that I, it never would have occurred to me. And it's been many, many benefits of that in our marriage. I shoot low with family devotions. And that actually was a big help to me. I sort of felt like, because we didn't do it as a family growing up. And every time we tried, it was an utter failure. And part because of me as a kid. And now I understand it from my dad's perspective. But I think when I just said, okay, at family dinner, when my dad is done eating, I'm going to open up the Bible, read a verse and talk about it. And that has gone way better than any planned, you know, curriculum or devotional I was supposed to read, which just ended up being a frustration. If others can do those things, fantastic for you. But the one advance I feel like I've made in the last several years, and we're not awesome at it, is shoot very low and we actually get much further. Again, thinking about faithful ministry, often we, we might look at, you know, being at a place for 35 years and, and saying, you know, this is what faithful ministry looks like. But are there times in which a, a, a pastor needs to realize, I need to move on from this ministry? I, I, this, for me to be, continue to be faithful to the Lord, I need to go somewhere else. How, how, how do you know that? And, and, and how do you know that versus the times when, you know what, it's really hard and I feel like I want to go somewhere else, but I really feel like I need to stay. How, how, do, you, how do you distinguish between those situations? I would say the the most important thing is the health of the church. Right? I I think that um, that is more important than anything else. So the decision should be made on what is in the best interest of this congregation of people, uh, because pastors exist for churches, not churches for pastors. So. So if it's just a career move, um, I, I think you should slow your roll, <laughs> right? It really should be, am I, uh, is the best interest of the church being served by my continued service in this place? Or might it be time for someone else to, to step into that role for the best interest of the church. I think that, to me, is the, the key thing. And now, obviously, if, it's, if there's a time of conflict in the church, then that would be the same thing, but applied to that, right? Am I the person to shepherd us through this conflict, or has this conflict effectively made me something that would be harmful to this church, and somebody else needs to come in and do that? Right. If it's a, you know, if it's a time of stagnation, then the question would be um, multifaceted at that point. But I think you'd still be asking, uh, what does the church need by God's grace to prosper, and uh, is it reasonable to think that that I could be 
an instrument that God uses for that. If what they need is some other kind of gifts and leadership, then you should be ready to step away from it, I think. So this actually happened to me within the past year. I mentioned yesterday a little bit about the revitalization effort. And I felt like when I stepped into that position as senior pastor that I was helpful to the church. And my concern throughout that process was, is there going to come a point where I'm actually holding the church back from taking the next steps and advancing because I'm bivocational, because my bandwidth is limited. And so, you know, there were many times throughout the process where I wanted to transition. <laughs> I was, you know, really, really ready to um, make a move, but I felt like the church wasn't in a position yet health-wise to really take that kind of transition. I would also just ask the, the deacons and then the elders later, how am I doing? Do you think I am serving the church well? Uh, where do you think we are in this process? And about a year ago, I got to the point where it was like, you know what? The church is growing. We've got all these young couples. The nursery is exploding. Um, these, these church members need something else. They, at this point, they need something different. And I cannot be the person to provide that. I think I'm actually going to hold them back from stepping into a new season of growth. And it's time for me to transition out. That was not an easy decision, but as Dr. Doran said, I mean, and I'm not the, the perfect example of this, but that was my thinking. What, what is in the best interest of this church? And that helped me to make some of those really hard decisions. Would you say something different if, if it's an assistant pastor who's trying to figure out, do I need to move on to a different ministry? Maybe not into the senior pastor role somewhere else, but maybe it's time for me to, to move on to a different ministry. Now, do you want them to move on, or do they want? Them to move on? <laughs> no, I, I think it's the same thing. It's um, if someone's serving as a pastor in the church, then they should be serving there because they have a heart for that assembly, and they want to see it healthy. And um, and if there's a point at which they have lost some of that desire and, and they have a different desire, then, then I think for the good of the church, they should make that move, right? I mean, if uh, I would hope, and this is a problem, it's got to be worked out, you know, because you can be in your own little bubble, right? But I would hope at some point, if I lost the desire to be, the pastor at Inner City, I would be coming to the conclusion that I'm no longer doing it willingly, like Peter says, and I shouldn't be here just because, like, hey, I'm 62, what else am I going to do, right? I mean, that, that would be, in my mind, abominable to, to put the health of the church behind whatever other thing is there, and I'd say the same thing was true if I were an assistant pastor. It'd be like, if, if my heart doesn't beat for the health of this church, then there's either something wrong with my heart or I have some other thing I'm supposed to be doing and I should do that thing, right? And not, um, you know, I don't, I don't, there's no, it, sometimes it would be nice if we could do the booming and dooming and get an answer, right? But I think it's something we have to wrestle through, um, but it's the health of the church and how do I contribute to the health of that church and what is the burden God's given me for the church. And if all of a sudden my burden for the church as an assistant pastor is different than the other pastors or, or whatever, then, then I would be the one that should recede instead of me trying to subvert or redirect, right? I'm, I'm there to to pull in the same direction, not not a different direction. So, so one final issue, somewhat related to that. As a pastor's nearing the end of his ministry, wanting to be faithful to the end, how do you know when it's time for me to retire, and how do you keep yourself from being the last one to know that it's time for you to retire? <laughs> for the two old guys. Yeah, I know. That's I'm sitting there going. Let's, well, uh, 
Ben, let me close in prayer. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We were, uh, I was talking about this with our staff the last few weeks, and it's, um, I came to Mission Road at 48, and I'm now 60, and that's, watch my math, that's about 12 years, I'm in my 13th year. So it's a humbling thing to think I'm closer to 70 than I am when I came to Mission Road. And that's a, that's a, that's a wow, because it just seems like I came yesterday. And so I, I've, um, I've been around too many, let's just say it, too many pastors who I think probably would be well served to take a different role. And so what we've, I've been talking to my wife a lot about this is we've kind of arbitrarily said by the, by the number 70, I want to see a clear off ramp. Doesn't mean I'm going to retire at 70 or doesn't mean that, you know, a health issue couldn't, couldn't knock me out at 65, but, uh, back to planning it just to be deliberate about that. And, um, I would, maybe this is pride. I would rather find the off ramp when they would love me to be there than be there when they were trying to show me the off ramp <laughs> in you, subtle ways. You missed it a few exits. You ago. missed it way back. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think that's deliberate. And so I love what, uh, what Dave said. You, you, you're asking, uh, Carrie said this too. You, you start asking, Will the church be better served by someone younger with more energy and more vibrancy and more this, more that? And the answer to that is eventually the, that answer will be yes. And I, I, having, you want to come to that conclusion, so much of this is how relationally, um, spiritually intimate, and that's, that's the right word, with your elders and your pastors are who can, you can be honest about that. Um, but I, uh, can I dream for just one second? I would love to break all the rules. Uh, maybe I can't, but I would love to break every every caricature. I would love in a perfect world, or at least my world, um, to find the guy who's going to replace me and be his associate in the waning years of my ministry. I know that they say that's never supposed to be able to happen. But I think it could. I think it really could. Um, but listening to the people around you is important. And um, listening to your wife and also everyone needs to understand that you're different at 70 than you were at 60. I'm different at 60 than I was at 50. Far more fit, far more able, far... No. Um, <laughs> so I think just being realistic that the, we're, we're, the fuse is lit for all of us. And to finish well doesn't always mean finishing long and helping, having the people around you to help figure that out and listening to them. Because I think people are sometimes a little more subtle in their hints than they need to be, which is, you know, I think it's time for this season of your life to be a counseling ministry. So, so. so I started at 27 and I'm at 62. So, so I've been at it a long time. And, and um, when I first started off, there were a bunch of churches that I was aware of who had guys that were there 25, 30 years, and then they, they were splitting. And so I remember thinking, you know, I just followed a guy who was here 40 years. I was thinking I'd be here probably the rest of my life. Uh, what, what was producing that? So I would, I'm not, and we don't have time for me to go into my whole little deal, but I think part of the answer is, is you know, just like you said, the fuse is lit, right? I, I need to be thinking all the way down to the end. Right. What kind of ministry do I want to build that will, will have staying power? Right. And, and then I think, uh, some practical thing. I mean, so I don't know that I've actually ever said this like in this big of a context, but when I hit was coming up to 20 years, I purposed that every five years, I would seriously examine the question as to whether or not it's time. Because I, I, I tend to think people won't say the blunt thing they need to say until it's too late, right? And, and the church is, is in serious decline, and then people go, well, maybe you should have a counseling ministry. Wish they wouldn't say that to me, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need to do something, <laughs> become a golf evangelist. Or, no. um, 
So, so the problem is you don't want to get that information when you're already when a yeah. church is already seriously in decline, right? So, so I think we should be out front saying uh, what needs to happen for this next phase by God's grace. Going back to what Reagan said is all right. So where are we, and what steps need to be taken? And some of that is accommodating the changes that take place. Because right? hopefully, if your mind has stayed um, healthy, you might not have the physical energy, but you have wisdom and advice and counsel and value, right? So, so you could change support structures to help that. Um, I do think one practical way to look at it, my observation is, because this is... Um, for better or for worse, churches tend to go through a health cycle, and and they tend to be energized by a central leader and that generation of people, and they then all of a sudden that whole generation and that leader are starting to age out, and if the church hasn't taken care to make certain that it's actually still reaching younger generations mm-hmm. right you you um, it's 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 not always theological error that makes a church healthy for only a generation it could be that this church has just simply aged out right it used to be young families and now it's empty nesters and it's about to go to senior citizens, right? And and that's so. So there's that part of it. So every church actually needs to be recycling, right? You you actually have to be uh, reaching another another generation, and and if you start to come to the conclusion that your ministry is is not being effective in that. Right then, then you need to do something to supplement that, or replace. Right. So if 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 you're, you know, so I I I think there's some practicality to it. Right. It's like it's a, I don't want I don't want I've never thought of this analogy, so I probably shouldn't use it. But you know, at some point, guys who love to do youth ministry eventually phase out of youth ministry because they can't keep up with it. Right, they or their own kids are now that age, right? Because and you tend to go, you need someone a little bit younger, a little bit, right? We recognize that, uh, but then we forget about that with church, and we can just watch the whole church go gray or gone, and never say, "What are we doing to staff and to reach young families?" And 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 it can sometimes be put off so far that the church can't pull out of the tailspin practically because every young family shows up and goes, we'd love to come to your church, but there's, there's no young families. Right. And then, then it's like this, like, well, obviously, cause every young family that came said they're not going to come cause there's no young families. So it's like, but you know, you can have churches that used to be thriving with healthy ministries for families, and then there just were no families, so there's no healthy ministry, and and they just practically phase themselves out. And we can be responsible for that because our attention shifts, and we don't realize what we've done. Right. So that's why I think we have to think about it regularly and go, what's being done to continually revitalize our church and to make certain we're reaching all the people we're supposed to be reaching and and we have a balanced intergenerational ministry if you if you keep your eye on that in theory it could sus, you know sustain it longer but i hope thank you very <laughs> much gentlemen for for sharing your thoughts and encouraging us and thinking about a focus in faithful ministry